coming up on Life is a Festival. If you are just saying, hey, we're decentralizing, it's a flat structure, we have no leaders, you will have emergent leadership. And you will have some that emerge as leaders because they take a lot of space and they grab leadership. But you also have everyone wanting leaders. There, there's this drive in us, so many of us, to find leaders so that we can project leadership on them, so that we can project, uh, you know, that someone knows more about this confusing shit than I do. You know, someone, I might know, not know what's going on in life, but at least I know someone who does. My name is Eamon Armstrong. And this is Life is a Festival. This podcast is a celebration of thinkers and leaders who live their lives with the open-hearted, experimental joy of a festival. Each week, we converse in complete openness, in an ongoing quest to find those boundaries in our being and melt them into lofty horizons. Life is a festival, only to the wise. Today I'm speaking with Gustav Tada, futurist, public speaker, and a co-creator of The Borderland, the Scandinavian regional Burning Man event. I met Gustav a few months before I attended The Borderland in 2016, and I have been fascinated with the event and this man ever since. Unique amongst global gatherings, the borderland is almost entirely decentralized. That means that it is absolutely up to all the participants to co-create the festival. On the podcast, Gustav and I talk about leaderless leadership, why he loves crappy art, how he sees festivals as vehicles for personal growth, and why decentralization is so important for that process. From Nordic LARPing to becoming one of Sweden's most sought-after public speakers, Gustav Tada co-creator of The Borderland, has truly designed his life as a festival. Well, I am so excited to be here with you. This is Gustav Tada. Um, why are you now called Tada? Uh, well, you know, me and my wife, we got married a year ago, and we felt we needed a new last name to give a bit of an, you know, accent to our existence uh, so we changed our last name to Tada. Well, here we have Gustav Tada, um, who I'm speaking to. He is in Sweden. I'm in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And uh, I first met you, Gustav, at the Burning Man Leadership uh, Conference Council gathering. Yeah, com- yeah, conference. A a a, a Burning Man get together uh, in April of 2016 and Mm -hmm. you were dressed fabulously and you immediately looked to me like some sort of European prince and I was quite captivated by you. And um, Well, we had heard about each other. We've had uh, several introductions online, people telling us that we should get to know each other. So I knew who you were when we met and the other way around. Well, So I actually didn't know who you were when I saw you. And I was like, who is that handsome man? Who is this person? Because you were, I can't remember exactly what you were dressed like, but you looked like, you were basically looked like Hamlet to me. I just saw you from afar, and I was like, that man is Hamlet. And then I realized you were the Gustav that I was meant to meet, 
And we did meet. And then I had the privilege that year of attending the Borderland in Denmark, which is the Nordic Burn, um, which you are one of the co-founders of. And I'm so excited to speak about that event. I had heard about it as this completely decentralized gathering. It's quite a bit smaller than Burning Man. And I was just completely blown away, both to attend the event and actually to hear you speak there about your theories around gathering and how to create an event like the Borderland. So during today's podcast, I would love to hear about your personal journey and with Burning Man and with gatherings like these and your work with the Borderland. Also, um, is it what is the Stockholm urban burn called the urban the burn, urban burn? Yeah, it's like a five-day indoor warehouse burn five days so i assume people aren't sleeping in the warehouse no they're not but it is decentralized in the way it's the same blank canvas idea so uh, unlike other indoor uh burn-ish events uh they have a production crew and then they have part- people who attend during the event this is actually you know if you buy a ticket and you get access to an empty room and then you come in there and you build shit and there's no differentiation between uh volunteer organizer um artist and uh visitor like many decompressions and similar parties have so let's talk about decentralized gatherings. You say you buy a let, ticket. Let, sh- oh. you, you, I, I think we should do the Borderland story. Since you mentioned the Borderland, I think I should do a little framing of that, maybe. Oh, yeah, I would love that. Let's talk that, about Borderland. Is that, is that a good thing? So, 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 so just to give the story where this came from. So I grew up in the Swedish live role-playing community, LARPing. And, and the Nordic LARPing community is a bit more avant-garde than a lot of other parts of the world. It's very focused on storytelling and character play. Not so much, um, you know, the gaming part of it where you can win or there's, a, you know, there's action oriented. But it's a lot of things that are on depth and storytelling and, and really going into character and exploring uh, em- different emotional states and different parts of your own personality. And we had this idea that had been cooking for several years. I, I heard about Burning Man first time in 2003 after I'd been to a live role-playing game called Future Drome, which was a, a, a game that played out in a city that it was a post-apocalyptic city. The world has ended and what was left of humanity was kept in a, in a, uh, in, in a city that was uh, controlled by an artificial intelligence who kept humanity under control through the perpetual party. So everyone was playing characters that in one way or another fed into keeping the party going. And and they even had a clown police that would arrest people who were determined not having fun enough. And they would lock them up until they were having fun again. And and from there, uh, we th- there was people talking about Burning Man. No one had been there, but we heard about it. And I actually thought about going back then. But this community kept going with this conversation about making a live role-playing game where you could play any character you wanted, where you could actually take a part of yourself that you wanted to explore and just have a, a sandbox where you could play out this character. And that was the idea behind the borderland, the borderland, the land on the border between reality and dreams, where you are allowed to to dream of what can be and prototype who you might be or what you might be doing. 
And and this was scouted, or uh, I think the first scouting mission, which I was not a part of, was in 2010 with 10 people who went to to look in an area and camp there for a few days. But around that time, 2009, I went to my first Burning Man. And we were two, four, four friends uh, that, that went there together. And as we came home, me and my best friend Ole, we were like, okay, this is cool. We should bring more people here. And this was at the same time Borderland was starting up. And, and we brought some of the Borderland people and, and some of my friends. We actually brought 28 Swedes the second year uh, to the shock of the theme camp that thought we were going to, they were letting a few Swedes in. And we ended up being half the camp. And uh, coming back from there, uh, we took a lot of the inspiration from Burning Man and put into the Borderland. And the goal was in 2011 to have the first, you know, the first uh, Borderland event. And we hoped for 300 people. There was one week left. We'd sold 12 tickets. <laughs> and uh, it ended up, I think, being like 45, 50 people. And... Um, and that, that, that was the start 2011. And, and the year after we decided to, uh, we'd start talking with the regional network of Burning Man and we started trying to, let's, let's see if we can play with the, we'll play with the 10 principles and use those. And there was also a, a burn starting up in Denmark and, uh, it's a longer story, but it ended up with them losing their their the place where they were supposed to have their festival. So they moved their entire festival to the borderland. So suddenly we had two festivals becoming one, about 110 people with um, two-thirds Swedes and one-third Dane. And that became the foundation of the Nordic Burning Man event, to say say that, uh, Borderland, which then grew to 150, 300, 800, 1100, 1800, and now two and a half thousand people, uh, eight years running. And we started in, in Sweden, we moved around in Sweden, we then moved to Denmark in 2015, and we're now in our second venue in Denmark. We'd had to move as we've been growing. And yeah, it's now, I think it is an official sanctioned Burning Man uh, event. We do not mention Burning Man on our, on our webpage. We purposely try to not market it as a burn and, and try to maintain our own identity. We are obviously very inspired by what Burning Man has done. And, and I've learned a lot from my years at, at the Gerlach event. And at the same time, it's been very important for us to grow our own community and our own way of doing things. So when you speak of your own way of doing things, so I attended in 2016, and I was flabbergasted by this idea of a decentralized party. Uh, and I actually saw that decentralization put to the test, which we'll talk about a little bit later on in the conversation. Um, I surmised that this must be something about Nordic people <laughs> in my in my assumption. I was like, Nordic people are so cool. They're so like the society is so um it's such a flat society to begin with, in my assumption of Nordic culture. And therefore this the burn is it's possible in this way. It's also a smaller burn. Um I think that helped. And I think there's a lot of intention that went in to begin with, as you described. Can you tell me what the differences between the Borderland and Burning Man and how that relates in your mind to Nordic culture, I understand I'm probably making a lot of assumptions. 
So I, I think there is a connect. I mean, there's definitely a difference in, in the culture. There is a more egalitarian, everyone take responsibility for each other kind of uh, ideology that, that is in the Nordic countries. There's also a little bit less of the male American ego, hey, come look at my huge fire shooting cock kind of thing, where you build things that are bigger than the neighbors. Uh, so, 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 I mean, there, there are, which means that we have smaller and crappier art, you know, <laughs> but, but the, 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 the effort and intention, the passion goes into other things. So, so, so yes, there is a cultural difference, but there's another, I, there is also the, the crew that started working with this came from the live role-playing community and the live role-playing community is, is one of the few other strong big communities in the world that really works with participatory events. I mean, of the, you know, you can argue cosplay as a participatory event and, and then you have Burning Man and then that's, but the, I mean, if you look history and that's worked with, and there's a lot of across the world, uh, uh, the the LARPing and the reenacting communities are, are really have a long story history, and and so so we were people who were used to a form of decentralized leadership and building events that way, and I think that separates us from another from a bunch of other burns. If you look at if you look at Africa Burn, for example, which was um, that came from a, a, the the people who started that had a, an experience of event production, festival of production, which is a, another type of event production experience than the people who came into to the Borderlands starting that, and and there there's also I, I think a very there was a strong kind of anarchist ideology in that that the that we we did not want to build an event that meant that we would have to do shit for other people that that and i mean that was i, I that's i think that's very core to the burning man ethos and it's very evident in the the early history of burning man and then at the same time at some point burning man had to grow up and and you know get its shit together and then at some point it converted into a more traditional style of organization uh, i i think you know th it's clear to me that burning man has a very impressive co-creative process when it comes to con content but when you look at how infrastructure and how event production is gone is do done it falls back on uh, semi-traditional uh, methods for event production. So, so we had this idea, this I, this experience. We had the ideology, and we really. So, how do we build a co-created uh, model that is scalable? So, because because you know it's easy to do that when you're a couple of hundred people, but but it was really a, a part of the curiosity that we had as a, a, a crew was exploring this new type of organizational building and this ha this is also stuff that's been reflected in books that we were reading uh, you know um holacracy uh, by Brian Robeson uh, the reinventing organizations by Frederick Laloux which are management 
books for you know corporate management books that that we were inspired by so so there was there was an early and clear intention in we want to be building a different type of organization that are taking these burning man principles and applying to things like porta potties <laughs> you know <laughs> not just the fun art but really how do we apply the principles so so early on the first years for example so we had an external company that came to the door and dropped off buckets and then came and picked up buckets. And then no one at the event was responsible for getting those buckets into the portas to the stalls and switching them out when they got too full. Instead, there were just instructions printed on the wall of the stalls. How did that, that you know when this and, and it worked fine. It worked out. So yeah. There was an, uh, oh, it worked. It worked excellent. And this we did that up to we were uh, five hundred people, and that worked excellent. Um, we we just had the uh, we w people would notice that okay, this is getting too full, and now you switch it out. And then uh, when we when we moved venue, we had to switch. Um, we had to switch a system. Then we had porta potties for a while, and then we had an external because that you can't do much about because you need an external company to come in and do that. Can um, can we pause for one moment about porta potties? Um, one yes. one year at Borderland, um, there was an art project where someone took on the task of building an incredible shitter. Do you do you recall the yeah, project no, I'm not talking just about? One. So so this so this was an idea that first came up at Urban Burn, but then have been moved to the Borderland and happened several times on the Borderland called uh, Shitopia. So so uh, uh, to get people to clean up the bathrooms instead of saying, "Hey, let's do a volunteer crew to clean up bathrooms," we would have artists adopt stalls and make each stall uh, an art installation. And then they would also, uh, partly if the stall looks beautiful from the start, then people don't trash it as much. You walk in there and you get some respect for the room you're in and you take more care of it. And then, uh, of course, the, the whoever has put up the stall has a sense of responsibility, so they will check into it. So so what, what happened was that we, we noticed that we got, we got both nicer, prettier stalls, but they were also uh, more well taken care of. And we've seen those, those years where we, we couldn't do art in all of them. We've seen that the ones with art were better taken care of than the ones without art. So, so we're using art to foster uh, or to encourage participation and encourage responsibility. So you were talking about how up to 500 people, this um, impromptu swapping of buckets seemed to uh, be a sort of self-organized way of dealing with probably the least pleasant part of a festival experience or a burn experience, which mm -hmm. is dealing with your shit, quite literally cleaning up after your own shit. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, yeah. And then this evolved into, um, into art projects that gave people more of a sense of reverence and responsibility. Um, have you yeah. come up against, as the event has grown, it's almost 2,000 people now, um, two and a half, two and a half thousand people. Okay, so really getting bigger. Have have you run up against some issues with the self organizing approach to crappers? So so let's um, the the crappers we have 
moved to a we actually have some volunteers as in we have people who who get directed uh tickets to actually come that that's actually the only directed directed tickets that we gave out uh were to people helping out with uh the porta potties this year Oh, wow. <laughs> so we are, because we, we have a fundamental principle that there are no directed tickets. So only uh, the seven people on the board, they get to register before everyone else. Everyone else is in the lottery, no matter what who you are. So that's been a, a very like fundamental principle. We brought that, wrote that into our bylaws that, you know, that, that the, the board is responsible for distributing membership in the most egalitarian way possible. And, and if they do any exceptions to that principles, those principles, then that has to be done transparently and specifically. So any directed ticket that gives out has to be presented that we are giving this directed ticket out to this person for this reason, which you know, compared to Burning Man, which has about half the tickets being non-transparently uh, being directed to, you know, we don't know, uh, me, for example. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the board. Um, this idea of a self-governing party is quite a fascinating model for an event, for partying, but then also a model for the world. Um the board has grown. I, I believe wasn't the board only three people the first year I went, and now it's seven. Did it grow? No, 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 no. It's been it's been. Seven oh, it's always been seven. For a while. Okay, um, yeah, yeah. I I must have gotten that incorrectly. Um, you were on the board from the beginning, and then, as I recall, you elected not to be on the board. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, can you tell me a little bit about the board, your own relationship to it, and why you decided to step away from the board? So, so uh, I, I think. Um, it's important to talk about the this. So we're talking about the board of the nonprofit that is the legal responsibly, um, the, the the legal part in in renting the area and, and the finances, right? So it's important that you always look at these kind of formal formal organizations as vehicles or as tools. So this is not the borderland. The board is not the borderland. The board is not really responsible for the borderland, except that, you know, some parts of this world think that formalities are important. So then we create uh, the charade <laughs> of responsibility for them. Uh, and, and, and at the same time, we have a self-awareness that this power this so-called power structure that we are creating is just a vehicle. It's just a tool to solve certain types of practical problems, such as signing agreements, such as taking in and moving around a lot of money. But the, the board should not be the origin of power. The, the board should not be the origin of vision of where we're going or what our purpose is. They should not be the origin of our values, right? So, so they are just... A, they're the administrative department, right? Uh, now, that has, of course, also overlapped. You know, early years, the administrative roles of having a board in people overlaps a lot of, with the people who take practical responsibility and who fixes the shitter the the ordering the the trucks for the shitters or that are taking the long shifts for the for the clown police that we've we've 
we've kept from Future Dome. We tell me again. Have a clown police instead of rangers. Yeah, tell me again about the rangers. clown police. So we, in, instead of just having rangers, which uh, to me has a, well, it's it's a very, um, this is a, me having a Swedish association, but I associate rangers with some kind of para military thing. Uh, and, and to me, we wanted to do something that was more fun and say that these the roles of these responsible people were not just to prevent bad things and control, but to have the role of making people feel good. So so we used the clown police from, from Future Drome, got inspired from that. So our security force are actually clowns, and their job is to go around and make sure people have a good time. Then they also have radios on them. They also have security training and they know uh, all the emergency protocols. But their primary purpose is to entertain and to take care of people. So it's just a way of flipping something from instead of preventing bad, we're promoting good. Mm, so so that was a sidetrack. But but uh, um, so so yes, the board has some formal power and at the same time those are not necessarily the people who carry our vision our values and they're not necessarily the people you have to ask for permission to do something but rather we have decentralized methods for decision making to be able to make decisions without having to go to the boss who has to go to their boss who has to go to their boss and so on which is the old way of doing things and you decided to step away from the board. At the time when I witnessed that, perhaps I was too much in old paradigm thinking, but I saw that as you want, not wanting to be as much of a figurehead or as, or as identified as much in a leadership role, and that's why you took a step back. Was I right in thinking that that was part of it? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, because even though we're saying that the board is this um, you know, administrative vehicle, uh, you still get such a projection of authority on you. This, this is actually like a this is a, a topic uh, that I, uh, I I I could spend some time on. So let's do it. So I, I think that a lot of event organizers, uh, especially event organizers that have started. This is, you know, this because festival organization that happens out of passion. You always start out out of passion. It might become a job at some point, but you start out of passion, and you want to create something, and you want to to give something, and that's that's your, you know, and you you it comes from within you something that you want to share, and at some point people start looking to you for things that you might not have volunteered to give uh, and people start having expectations on what you as a leader should be should, should supposedly supposedly do or how you should act or um i i, I this the example of i'm i'm walking around the borderland and this is you know we're up to 800 people something uh, or a thousand people and someone sees me and said like, oh, there's Gustav, and walks up to me and is like, hey, do you know where the closest bathrooms are? And this is a person that I, I don't know. 
And they've just, you know, they've seen me on a picture thinking that I am the responsible person here. So instead of just asking, you know, 95% of all the people around them know where the closest bathrooms are. But the, the instinct is to look for authority even for those simplest things. So, so you become bogged down by bullshit as a leader. Because people project knowledge on you. People project, you know, they the, the responsibility that they don't want to take themselves. They want you to take responsibility for. And, and you start hearing those questions that people that that's, uh, I, I or I will find myself in a situation where someone asks me a question for something they already have the answer to. But they don't want to take the decision themselves because of fear of being wrong or making a mistake. So I'm being asked not really because they want to learn something from me, but rather because they don't want to take responsibility for for the decision. And and that um, that means that we if you are just saying hey, we're decentralizing, it's a flat structure, we have no leaders, you will have emergent leadership. And you will have some that emerge as leaders because they take a lot of space and they grab leadership. But you also have everyone wanting leaders. There's this drive in us, so many of us, to find leaders so that we can project leadership on them, so that we can project... Uh, you know, that someone knows more about this confusing shit than I do. You know, someone, I might know, not know what's going on in life, but at least I know someone who does. And battling those projections is, is hard. And it, 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 requires, it requires an effort. Because if, if you just accept it, then you will become more and more iconified and it will separate you from from the normal from the from the rest of the crowd and that's a it's a lonely place to be as you're being pushed away more and more into people listen a little bit too much on what you're saying even though you don't really want them to listen that much to what you're saying uh people go to you for for things they you know that um the things that you might not be the best suited person to ask uh, or or just you know have someone take responsibility for them and uh building a decentralized leadership ha- requires a lot of you know not feeling too good about being a leader recognizing other people's projections on you and and finding ways to um, build a culture or find other structures that we can put our common projections on instead of having to put them on each other. I don't know. That was a, a little bit of a rant. It was um, a great so rant. Please, please, yeah, it was a great rant. Um, so your your philosophy on leadership and indeed the Borderlands values and decentralization ethos was really put to the test the year I attended 2016. Um, a young man uh, went swimming at night and drowned. 
And this was an enormous tragedy for the Borderland community. And you had a very specific diligence in how you thought that this should be responded to, and indeed the Borderland community did as well. And um, the results were really quite unexpected for me as an attendee. I'd love to hear from your perspective about that tragic event and the decisions the leadership made and and what came out of those decisions. So, so I, I wouldn't say that the, uh, the I, I was that, I, I think, so, so, uh, hmm. well, maybe per, perhaps let's start with the story I, 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 and, and you can kind of, yes, so, I don't mean so, to characterize so, you a specific way, but let's, I just like to hear about no, your perspective. So, 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 uh, so at this point, we're having a very decentralized structure. We have, you know, no one being in charge of the event. We have uh, one, one person per day that is uh, kind of at the helm or being responsible for for the event but that was very unclear who that was and we kind of lost that schedule of who was actually so the whoever was around was responsible and and this is at a time when we are we are what we're 800 people and and then we have a clown police clown police have rotating shifts so that was you know that was a, a structure but I, I rather, I think the interesting thing was to me, like looking at how this played out. So as a person was found uh, lifeless in the water, there was, it took, you know, uh, there, there was immediate action of the people closest by getting him out of, of the water. There was someone in that group who knew CPR and started doing that immediately. Within three to, f- I think, like five minutes, there was an, ambul- uh, an ambulance driver on location that, you know, does this professionally all the time. And uh, within not too long, within in the next, like, 15 minutes, we had several people who were on the board, we had um, several active clown police who who came, and uh, and and in the next hours we had you know we had a professional crisis psychologist who took leadership of a group of psychologists who did uh, trauma therapy with the with the friends of of this the the guy uh, with the people who've been uh, the first responders. So, so all of these like structures started appearing, and and we did not have, we did not have this protocol for like what crisis therapy, right? That that's, and 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 and, and yeah, we had a clown police, but you know the ambulance driver who was there first and solving this so professionally, he was not on duty. He was not, you know, it was not his job to do this, and. I, and and a, a lot of and, and then you know a lot of things played out. We had Isadora, who was the chairman of the board at the time, who took a really strong responsibility in, you know, she's a very structured person. So she started taking protocols, noting everything that happened, doing interview, debriefing everyone, and writing down like fresh. So she, when when we had the police coming in, we could like hand over a big bunch of papers saying like, at this time this happened, at this time this happened. These are the people involved. These are the phone numbers. 
you know, because she had that experience and stepped into that leadership. I uh, have a, an experience of standing in front of crowds. So I was the one who took the stage and told everyone that this had happened and, and worked with the communication. So how do we talk about this in the community? How do we set up a, you know, a response where people in the community can have conversations about this and how to do that? But there was this idea that came up that we were lucky, right? That there was just randomly um, some ambulance driver showing up. That there was just randomly some, you know, other person. Like, like these roles were filled in the random fashion because they were not decided in advance. And I think attributing this to randomness and saying, oh, we were lucky, but now we need to put structure in is not understanding the beauty of decentralization. Because the beauty of decentralization is that we don't always know how problems will be solved, but we're building a broad readiness to the extent that we are, we are increasing the chances of being lucky. And, and if you've ever been to, you know, Burning Man, you know how that place is has a, a there's just a very likely chance of unlikely things happening, right? It's, 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 it's a very serendipitous place, and this is not just for these like oh so random I met this random dude here, but this is actually if you build a community where you have a lot of competent people there. You have them, them feeling a sense of responsibility for each other. You have a very uh, low uh, level, uh, low threshold for communication between you and your neighbor. You have a, a, a clear invitation for everyone to step up and take responsibility. You know, those are things that make magic, that make luck happen. And we can work on that that culture and that, you know, that uh, spread out readiness as a way of doing emergency response instead of saying, well, there has to be someone responsible for responding to this. Just, you know, if something happens at the borderland, yes, we have a clown police, but they're very rarely the first person there. And when they arrive it's very likely that someone more competent and suited to deal with a problem has already stepped up before them. So yeah, they are there. But it's that's not... Those other things that happen are not luck. That's design. And that's what happened with, with the, uh, that year. The everyone from the crisis psychologist to the ambulance driver, those that's not luck, it's a part of the structure, it's not a formal part of the structure, but it's a part of how we build events. Well, and I found that this experience, this tragedy at the borderland, um, received a certain to me profound vindication for the community itself, in that the sister of the deceased young man wrote 
a really beautiful letter to the Borderland community. And in that letter, she discussed the man who had passed and his uh, his lust for life, his thrill-seeking, and his adventure. And she, in a sense, exonerated the community, saying that her and her entire family were grateful for the response of the community and that uh, that she actually wanted to attend the event herself. And as far as looking at some other events where um, someone has passed away, there's you know, litigation, and there's animosity, and... Uh, okay, yeah, yeah, but that that was luck. Well, you were just <laughs> no, saying but, that but, you were I just mean, talking about how it's yeah. not luck. You said that yeah. it's luck we, that... We, we did a very, we did a great response, uh, but there's an aspect of he had a very good relationship with his family. If he would have had a more, um, you know, um, problematic you know, which a lot of people do. So, so, so then, then, then they might have been more judging of his behavior and hence more judging of our behavior. So I'd, I'd say, I mean, there's definitely a bit of luck there. But then some, you know, if that would have happened, there would be randomly a lawyer stepping up and helping us doing that, you know? So, so there's, it, it was not deemed to be exactly this way, but we are building a community where, lucky things are more likely to happen. And that's something we plan for. And that's a part of the way we we think about things. So I, I, I can take the other, you don't know as much about this crisis, but the one that we had this year where we, one month before the event, we lost the venue. So we had to move two and a half thousand people in 30 days. You know, and that's, uh, no, it wasn't one, it was six weeks, six weeks, yeah. And, and, and this time, what, what happened was that, you know, people popped out of the woodwork, people who were not on the board, who had never been engaged uh, organizationally before, that had been to one burn or maybe two burns, but that, that but, but just like, wow, this is, I have an idea how we can solve this. And we had proposals for moving to Norway and moving to Sweden. And we had, you know, we had a list of spaces that we could be. And finally, we, I mean, we wanted to do, since it was a short notice, we wanted to do a move that was not too far so that people who had moved, uh, bought plane tickets to Copenhagen could just use the same tickets. Uh, and we found one just in the, in the vicinity there. We only moved like an hour. Uh, away. And the people who ended up being the most responsible in signing, like solving all the formalities with that venue, the permits, doing uh, the working with the police, working with the fire department, working with the municipality, I would say, yeah, pretty much all of that work in those six weeks were done by people who had never before been in leadership in the borderland. So the the most you know the most the, the one of the biggest problems that can ever happen to a festival losing your venue with short notice was solved by people who were not before were not in leadership before the problem appeared. So that that's also lucky. You know, that touches base on really what this podcast is all about for me, which is how do we take these experiences we have as we congregate in festivals or burns and uh, use these as incubators for personal growth and and to 
better hone our service to the broader community to grow as individuals. Um, and it's interesting listening to you speak about people who were not engaged in leadership roles coming in at the last minute and and lending their support. And I would imagine growing into those responsibilities yeah, and those challenges, yeah, yeah. you know, like being tasked yeah. so to grow. Now, so so uh, one uh, woman who actually took became the main contact with a local municipality. She'd been to the borderland before, but she never stepped into... Uh, having any for any leadership role there uh she actually is she's on the board now so she moved from because it was practical to have her on the board since we're doing the same venue this year again and she's the one with the best relationship with the municipality so <laughs> so uh it, by having that openness to leadership all the time so so this is so so how do you Break out those tendon, break down those tendency to go to the usual suspects. So, when I want a problem solved, I'm in a leadership position. You know, I tend to go to people that I know can solve the problem, despite the fact that there are many people that I don't know in the community who can solve that problem. So, 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 to to me. Uh, we've we've worked. I mean, we've worked a lot with how can we decentralize communication in a way that all all communication around practical issues are done transparently, so that anyone can partake. So we're using we've used Slack, we used uh, Talk, with this built on Lumio, which is a, a collaborative uh, forum proposal platform, and we've used the Facebook group, and we try to not have any uh, communication happen in private unless there is a specific reason for that communication to happen in private. Because that means that people can listen in all the time and it makes it easier for them to understand what is going on under the hood. That means that we have a lot of leaders that are just one step away. They've listened in for a while. They followed this conversation here and there. And then suddenly there's an, a, 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 a situation where they have something to say and they step into that leadership. So you don't have to be invited into leadership. You don't have to get assigned a role. But we, we, you, you work with transparency first in communications and using digital platforms to always be speaking to each other, even if it's me and two other people who've been in this since the beginning and we're talking about some very specific issue about something. You know, we do that in a public forum because that makes it easier for people to step into leadership. And uh, that's... So, so... Um, yeah. Um, so, so what? And, and, oh, yeah, yeah. So, so another part of that is why are we doing this? It it goes back to a a, a a thing, a thought of purpose. And to me, I think it's very important to let go of the idea that we're trying to produce a good event. Mm. I see that being a trap in so many of. Uh, festivals in all types of festivals. You are trying. You think that you're trying to produce a good event, and then you are willing to sacrifice uh, yourself, your own principles, how uh, coworkers treat each other, 
uh, how, what relationships you build. You, you compromise a lot of things because you want everyone to be happy. You want to deliver that experience, right? You want to deliver that, that festival experience and you want things to be, uh, good. You want things to be efficient. And I would argue that the reason I build the Borderland and similar participatory co-created festivals or, or events, because I don't just do festivals. The reason I do that is because I believe in personal growth and, and festivals as vehicles for personal transformation. And then trying to do good is not necessarily the best tool for transformation. Because a lot of transformation happens when, when bad things happen too. And when you try to do good things for others, you rid them of their opportunity for growth, for seeing the bad side, for, for meeting the reality. You're basically pampering and, and creating a fluffy little, you know, cute little space around people. Uh, and, you know, allowing people allowing someone to take on responsibility that they really can't handle and that they fail so that someone else will have to step in and do it. That decreases efficiency, right? That, that we do a lot of mistakes, things have to be redone. We have to do things over and over because people don't, uh, you know, uh, it's not coherent and we don't have structure. Efficiency is basically, you know, eliminating opportunities for learning. Because all these, like, we are all on such different stages in our development. And if we all try to put in systems to eliminate all the newbie errors of event production, then the newbies won't get the chance to make those mistakes and they won't grow. So efficiency is a trap. It it you know it 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 makes you put in structures that bereaves people of their opportunity to learn and grow. You know this reminds me of something that you once said that I love so much which is you you once declared I think in a talk that you gave I love crappy art. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So wh why this this is, makes me think of that. So tell me specifically, why do you why are you such a big fan of crappy art? So 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 um I I this was an insight. I was at Midburn actually. And I walked into a camp, a pretty big camp. And they had, you know, they had a clear theme, you know, they had the stars and the sun and the, you know, uh, some kind of star theme that was part of their name. And there were clearly some parts that was beautifully executed. The 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 DJ booth was was kind of nice. But then there was like someone had made a rainbow and it was kind of shit. <laughs> and then there was someone who'd made these stars that was just like, oh, yay, we did this, you know, like a, this uh, arts and crafts thing, you know? And it was just, and it was, there was a theme and it was all very, incoherent and so obvious that different people from different backgrounds and different skill levels had been a part of doing this. And it was just so... To, to me, when I see crappy art, that means that everyone got to play. Mm. 
When I walk into a theme camp and everything is on fucking point, then you know for a fact that there were only a select group of people that did the design and did the creative part of the theme camp, like the creative input. And then you had probably a larger crew that got to execute, that got to build and do shit. But their contribution wasn't creative in nature. It was just labor. If you let everyone contribute with their actual creativity, how crappy it might be, you will, it will look different. And to me, uh, inviting that creative spark in everyone requires to create frames where crappy art is not just allowed by encouraged and celebrated. Because uh, uh, to me, a lot of what art is about is creation, not consumption. And, and making art so that it's good, so that other people can, people can consume it, is to me very secondary to having everyone experience the feeling of creating art and putting your soul and your passion into physical form. Uh, let's talk about discomfort, because um, this is also part of the idea of everyone gets to play. You're invariably going to have some discomfort. In 2017, there was an art project uh, at the Borderland that caused some major consternation in the community. In fact, it was actually written up in Afropunk magazine. Uh, <laughs> this was the the slave market at at Borderland in 2017, where um, a group of of Borderland attendees were very interested in what's referred to as as edge play, maybe, as trying to intentionally trying to trigger people um, in the interest of perhaps the argument can be personal growth, or maybe yeah, it's just I, being a dick. Yeah. Um, and well, this caused a, well, this caused a lot of issue with there was a lot of conversation, a lot of issue within the borderline community. And I'd love to know your take on it and how something like this fits into your philosophy around everyone getting to participate and and everyone getting to play. You know, I, I think it was I, I think it, it was in a way beautiful that that was happening. And and uh it, it was a microcosm of uh, the world and the conversations that are going out there and the conflicts that are going around there. And I, I think it's good to have the conflicts of the outer world actually make their way in to our container so that we can play out those conversations there too. I think it's dangerous if everyone just agrees all the time and, you know, it becomes this escapist pod where everyone's just happy and we just don't talk about the troubles we actually have. So, so in a way, I, I think... It's it's a good thing that uh, I, I think it's good that things like that happen. Now, so so this was a slave market, and uh, I mean, there's been slave markets at Burning Man too. Uh, I I think this was I th I don't think there was that much of an intention to create that amount of conflict when it happened. Uh, it was just a you know bunch of play and more. I think it was more the idea more supposed to play on dominance rather than race, which it became. And that was partly because there was um, a, a montage in the Facebook event for the thing. There was a montage of photos, and obviously some of those were racially related. And that um, 
triggered a lot of people and, and understandably so. The, um, and not only the Af- and, and not the Afropunk. Ti- yeah. Let me just say this here. The Afropunk title of the article that they ran was white people throw, quote, edgy slave market, end quote, uh, event in Denmark because slavery is so fun. That was the article in Afropunk. Yeah. yeah. So 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 that article is so it's beyond stupid. Now, I, I didn't say that in the very appropriate response that we wrote to that article. We wrote a very appropriate response. But it's, this is like peop, this is written by someone who's not interested in understanding, but rather in creating conflict and drama. And I, I you know, I'm so over that kind of jer- so called journalism. But, but I mean, there was definitely problematic things. And I, I'd say, not so much the the core of what the workshop was supposed to be, but rather how it was presented. And it was also when people got triggered by the event, then the reactions of the organizers were not very pleasant, right? So so it became, well, I'm triggered by the thing you're doing. Well, I'm triggered by the fact that you're triggered, you know? I'm offended that you're offended. And it became like this um, very unnecessary drama from both sides and i think it was very poorly treated and and talked about from both sides of that conversation and it ended up and and the thing is it was not that much of a drama inside the community but what happened was that some people who were in the facebook group brought in a bunch of internet trolls so we had you know we had uh we had 20 30 40 people per day flowing into our facebook group from out, from the outside not knowing anything about the borderland not knowing anything about what we do and just to go in there and be angry right and and i though that that kind of behavior this is fuck off you you enter a community space just to hate on people that's just no don't and 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 that became you know the, the inability to, like especially for the the Afropunk article that thinks that the organizers of the Borderland has anything to do with this pretty small event at a very at a, you know this is a 20 30 people camp in a festival of um of 1800 people so uh, and and they're doing their thing and other people are doing other things and our response was it's none of our business what they do and that was you know that message it was not that they didn't accept it they didn't even listen to that so as you read in the article it's even written as if we are organizing it right they couldn't see the separation that happens between an organizer of a participatory event and the content creators, the participants that, that, that are there. So they blame the entire organization because they, they don't understand what, you know, what collaborative or co-created culture means. So, so it's, I don't know, a uh, rant. <laughs> okay. So it's, it's so, so, um, yeah, I, I, I think it was, um, I think it's nice that people have something to fight about. It sucks that people um, get along all the time within our community. What 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 sucked was the 
the internet warriors that have nothing to do with the community and have no interest in understanding or reading anything before they went on full rant and personal insults and calling everyone Hitler, you know, and, and those had to be, you know, banned from the group. And then, of course, you know, their friends would go in and say, well, my friend got banned in the group because she, you know, come on. Yeah. Has that crisis... um blown over pretty completely now do you still see oh, any yeah, ramifications yeah, yeah. from no, it no no yeah it's, it's, yeah it was over af- it was over already at the event more or less i mean there was some people who cared about it during the event but the rest of us just yeah we're fine so the borderland is one of the sexiest events i've ever been to one of the most sexually liberated events I've ever been to. Um, Part of why I was originally invited uh, by a mutual friend of ours, um, specifically he wanted me to attend the event, was because he had experienced a workshop there called an anal de-armoring, where um, he, with a group of men, experienced a tantric practice of anal stimulation through fingers um, in order to release armoring around his asshole. And he invited me to go to experience a uh, similar thing. And people, <laughs> that was his invitation. That was his invitation. That was his framing. That was his framing. He was like, you got to come to this. You got to get your anus de-armored. I, I'm pretty sure you can go to that event at Burning Man too. You know, there was something about... I, I am pretty sure there are plenty <laughs> of districts in at, Bur- at Black Rock City that can offer the same kind of treatment. I don't think you have to go to Sweden to do that. Well, you know, it, 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 it ends up being a pretty fun story. Story. Um, for me, I love talking yeah. about strange, kinky, sexy things. Um, my question about, as this all kind of feeds together, this decentralization, this environment that is really very liberated sexually, um, my question here is around both both why the borderland has such a sexually liberated ethos, which to me, it's it actually felt more liberated sexually than Burning Man, more open in terms of connection. So the two-part question, one is why do you do you see that at Borderland? And two, how do you handle issues around consent and safety around sexuality in an event that is so focused on decentralization and self-governance? So, okay, so so the first, so how how is it? I, I think it's the same answer as I gave earlier, which is, yes, it's part culture. I think there is, you know, we don't have as much um, religious baggage in our relation to our bodies and sexuality as the American uh, culture has. It's, it's a lot more polarized there. Uh, it, you have... You obviously have both sides of the spectra, but but there is a a internal conflict that is going on within the American soul, right, around sexuality that is not as strong and as shameful as we have in here. So so there is definitely a cultural thing. There is also a you know some of the people who were driving the Danish community early on were very involved in in tantric work. So there was obviously uh, early influencers, people who came in when the event was just a uh, hundred people and took a lot of space and saying, hey, I want to host this thing. And that, you know, 
for, for, for Burning Man, there was a lot of people who liked driving fast and shooting guns in the middle of the desert. And we happened to have a lot of people who liked fucking. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and those, that group of peoples put, uh, put, put a mark on, you know, cause it, it encourages what kind of, partly who gets invited, who gets to hear about it because of how the network effect works. And also it, it invites and inspires people who go there and have maybe their first tantric experience in that setting to come back and do more of that. So so it's, you know, it, it has to do with who happened to do things at what time um, that early on that put that put a certain flavor on it. And and what about the consent piece? Because I know that in all festival culture, there's a real issue around women's safety. There's a real issue around the um, confluence of sexuality and substance use. Uh, my experience at Borderland was that consent was a, a really highly focused piece of participation with each other. Um, is that something that in a decentralized environment that it's just lucky that that came along with all the sexuality stuff? Or is that something that the governing body focuses on? I, I, I think that uh, it's, I think it's the same story. Again, there's a cultural thing that consent is more, it's, the idea of consent is more spread out here maybe than in us and the, the i mean in sweden now we even have uh affirmative consent in our laws we changed our um rape uh laws last year uh, the, earlier this year so that now we actually have affirmative consent you need to sh have affirmative consent for sex to be legal so so that's you know it's it's very uh, much a thing here the, the other part is, yes, that early um, tantric community was also very consent-related. So uh, the people who came in and started doing sex work at, uh, at the borderland early on, they, they practiced uh, affirmative verbal consent. And that, of course, uh, is in, in, ingrained in many of... In, in pretty much all of those camps that work with uh, sexuality today. Uh, and there are, you know, there are the opposites. There was one tent this year that was just had a big sign saying no, no consent zone. So you go in there and then you, that's your consent. So that's, that's, that's a way of doing it too, which is, you that, know, in a way, exactly. Consent, that's Yeah, that's, a, right? that's exactly consent <laughs> to say no consent zone. And then you yeah. enter the zone. But, but is, it is like, it's, it's like fucking with the verbal affirmative consent by saying, do you go into this tent and you're in, which, which is also a, a beautiful way of working with it. And at the same time, you know, stating that we are not the kind of people who talk about shit, we just do it, right? And you can do both. So as we bring this amazing conversation to a close, um, where I'd like to, what I'd like to end with is um, a, a bit of a chat about what burn culture, festival culture, or LARPing culture, how that's influenced your personal growth, and how um, and what perhaps advice you might have for people who are entering into these spaces to get the most out of them, to what are some ways to engage with 
event like the Borderland or Burning Man or even a more commercial festival that will offer the most personal growth. So again, two parts, just want to know about your own experience and then any sort of advice you would give to someone listening who's inspired by your journey. So um, I... I, I work as an organizational developer today. I am uh, one of Sweden's most frequently uh, hired speakers on futurology. I do, you know, a hundred talks a year speaking about the future and how technology drives change in society and how that affects organizational development and how that affects personal development. So from tech to organize society, organization, personal. And a lot of what I'm speaking about, a lot of when I'm coaching leaders, the ideas, the methods, the, the personal learnings that I've had, that I share, all come from the burning world. Because uh, it's, it's giving me the opportunities to take leadership, to, the opportunities to take responsibility for myself, the opportunities to have conversations with amazing, knowledgeable, you know, interesting and, and grown up people. So, so uh, I, I think one part is, you know, don't underestimate how much knowledge is in this community. Don't underestimate how much opportunity for growth there is in this community. You, you have to choose it. I mean, because you can go to Burning Man and just party for a week and then go home. But if you choose to take on responsibility, if you choose to challenge yourself in what are you capable of, there are few places in the world where you have so much opportunity for growth. But it's only there if you ask for it. It's only there if you step into that leadership. You try on a new way of being you and say, you know, how does this feel when I'm certainly responsible, when I'm certainly on the suddenly on the spot? You know, when I suddenly have a schedule for my Burning Man that I, you know, I have to follow or whatever it is. So, so, and, and also how, you know, um, this, what is going on with Burning Man, participatory or co-created culture, um, decentralized organization, those, this is early adoption of a wider global trend right the the you know the the, the it's the, uh, co the 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 co-created culture or participatory culture as in youtube uh, the open source movement the maker movement it ties into a lot of like global trends of transparency of um of increased ability to take action to start your own business to do you know do change in society to build global movements to build networks all of those are macro trends that are happening all over the world and a lot of the things are happening first at burning man so it's it is a very interesting place to study the future both on a um a technical a philosophical and organizational point of view so, but, but of course, that means you will get learnings there that don't necessarily translate out to the world because a lot of, you know, old companies have not gotten there yet. And at the same time, if you can meet them halfway and see 
you know, what are their ways of doing it, and and what have you learned from from uh, from a, uh, a co-created set co-creative setting? Then there's a lot of learning and growth to happen in that intersection between the two. So, yeah, I I, um, I also, you know, regarding personal development or personal growth or personal transformation, I think there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of like leadership courses or personal development courses that you can go to. And I see a problem in, in scaling those because the the transformative experience is so tailored. It has so much to do with you and what you need and what and what point in your life. And trying to scale that and standardize that as you do when you try to do, you know, you try to build a, a personal development organization, you have a guru on top and or you build a you know a digital platform for personal development. It it it, you try to kind of fit it in and find to find common themes. You try to systematize, and that's good. Yeah, that's good. That's one way that is important too. But I think what the 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 cool thing that the BlackRock City does is that it allows for so many individual personal journeys to go on at the same time, and it really opens up for you to find your own path, to find what you need, or or be given what you need get punched in the face by what you need and and i really believe in this um, the 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 co-created or the participatory method for personal transformation because i think that's the only realistic way we have of scaling personal transformation on a global scale and and really i i think that's that's the most pressing problem the most pressing issue that we have to solve in this world right now is do how do we scale personal growth i i actually believe that the the purpose of our entire political joint project must be to further the psychological development of all citizens you know the to me the environment and global warmings you know those are big issues and those are secondary because if we can't scale personal growth then our democracy breaks down then our systems for information and understanding the science collectively that we need to understand to be able to take action on such a big thing as global warming will not happen so we need to um, really find more ways to reach all people in these opportunities to grow as a person. Because that is the only way that we will be able to maintain a free democratic society that can also take responsibility for our global challenges. Damn. Man, I just love talking to you. I <laughs> I learned so much every time you and I have a chance to speak. And there are so many other threads that I'd love to open up and so as this podcast develops, um, I'm definitely going to have you back. Um, I'd love to have an episode just about the future. Um, and, uh, we, you know, as you know, we're both really interested in this idea of modern masculinity. So there's so much more for you and I to talk about. Um, so I'm really looking forward to more conversations. And you dropped some major, beautiful knowledge bombs today 
both for attendees of events. I think for organizers of events, there's a lot of really great wisdom here. Um, my final piece here is what are you looking to next? How can our audience support you? And where can people find out more about you, the talks you give, your work? Um, how can we get more on the Tada train? You can just Google me, Gustav Tada, T A D A A. G-U-S-T-A-F. Gustav Tada. Uh, and that's my webpage. And there's my Facebook. And there's my, you know, this stuff where you can follow people. I currently have no reoccurring uh, channel that is in English. There are some talks, I think, that I've given that are online in English. But uh, all, I've done some podcasts and stuff that I work with. But they're unfortunately in Swedish right now. I have one that I am working on that is in English. Oh, yeah, yeah. On my Facebook page, there is uh, all the, the broadcasts that I did this spring. Uh, we I did Facebook Live for a while, and I might pick that up again. Uh, what's next for me is... Um, yeah, what's next for me? I... I, I uh, regarding Borderland, actually, I, I stepped away from all kind of practical organizational responsibility already this year. So what I'm producing next year and my gift to the community is going to be to produce a leadership retreat, a personal development leadership retreat, not specifically for the borderland, but have a leadership retreat of the level that it's actually no matter where you are in life or what you work with, this is something that you can take home and, and have be useful for the rest of your life and put in your CV or whatever, and then offer that to those people who want to step into any kind of responsibility at the borderline. Will that be offered in English? And will that be offered around the so, same time so as the so borderline? That, that, no, that will be during the spring. And then that will primarily be in, in a physical form. And then the idea is to see if I can scale that in, in some way, uh, especially to, you know, other burns. Because I uh, there are Burning Man um, meta gatherings of festival organizers, but they're very event production uh, community. They're, they're on the specific things. And I'd like to do a gathering that is more on me, on the individual and how, what personal skills do I have to develop to actually uh, uh, be this organizational figurehead uh, that to, 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 to find those new ways of leading in a leadership, leaders, leading in a leaderless organization. So, so I'm, I'm, that's I'm looking forward to that, and I see if I can scale that, and and also bring in other parts of the global festival community into leadership training. Nice, and I'll I'll put in a plug for you here because I know that you're interested in. You've been do, a, a very successful speaker in Sweden and in uh, the Nordic countries oh. so far, and I know that you are moving into a more of a global platform as a public speaker. So um, I'll put in a plug for you if we happen to have, yes, you know. Yes, Please book me. Please <laughs> all of the, book me as a speaker. Yeah, the tech leaders I, listening I, I, I right now. I do 100 gigs per year, but I do 95 of them in Sweden. Uh, but And I'd, I'd love to do more internationally. So please uh, reach out and, and uh, I'll love to come talk to you about the future, the world, or organizational uh, development. Well, Gustav, you are a brilliant man, and I am honored to be your friend. And thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing your knowledge. 
Thank you, Eamon. It's been really great uh, talking to you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us for Life is a Festival. If you liked the show, you can support it by sharing it with your friends, following it on Spotify, or reviewing it on iTunes. If you'd like to get more involved, you can join our Facebook group, Life is a Festival, where we talk about the show and you can suggest new guests. If you really liked the show and maybe want a little bit more, visit my digital tip jar at patreon slash lifeisafestival.com. Whatever you do, I hope today's podcast helped you make your life just a little bit more like a festival, and I'll see you on the dance floor.